0: This morning, we're continuing from the book of Exodus, chapter 13. Last week, we looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread in connection with the Passover. Today, we're going to look at a another theme connected in this text, for uh, it all works together uh, in an ordinance that is given to the people of Israel to obey the redemption of of the firstborn son. So if you will, please stand with me. We're going to read through chapter 13, verses 1 through 16 briefly. I'm going to stand for the reading of God's word. We're not going through as long of a section, but uh, so now we're going to read through this standing uh, just as the Israelites were called to do as Nehemiah and Ezra uh, preached the word in the Old Testament. So beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean, you shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my son I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of. Maybe seated. pray, Father. Just the fact that we can come before you and say that name—the grace that we do not—is a glorious thing to just dwell upon the fact that you called us your sons and daughters. We call you Father. For this is only because of your grace. By your mercy, Lord, you have provided Lord, a substitute so that we, Lord, might be reconciled to you. That we might Lord, escape your just wrath, which comes against us because of our. Lord, as we look upon this promise of a substitute, as we look upon the, Lord, the the justness of your wrath and Lord, the requirement of sacrifice, Lord, may we see your great love coupled, Lord, with your great justice. May we see that this is not some mere command for a people who lived thousands of years ago, Lord. But this is a truth that impacts us. That we too fought for Christ. Pray that we would understand. For may you make yourself known, reading, preaching. Pray all this, Christ. Firstborn of my son, I redeem. Some things are becoming ever more real to me. Yesterday marked one month till due date, so these kind of things really start to hit home. And one of the ways this hit home for me is I was sitting in the nursery. getting it ready this week and thought to myself, if I were living, if I was in my same situation in life yet removed from this year, removed from this date and this location and found myself in ancient Israel, what would I be thinking right now if I was living in faith under the law with these instructions that we've just received? I would be thinking, one, I wouldn't know that we were having a boy, you know, ultra. But even still, I would be thinking in my head, do I have a lamb ready? I mean, just think of, you know, we don't think about that at all when we're celebrating. You know, you don't come to the baby shower and somebody shows up with a lamb saying, oh, here you go, you'll be ready when eight days pass, you know, he gets delivered. You'll be ready to go down to the temple, down to the tabernacle. We don't think about that at all. But this was a, a statute that was given to Israel that the firstborn of their son, they had to be redeemed by the sacrifice of an innocent. I think so. For me, I was like, man, this would look a lot different for me. You know, you would be thinking through, I have to make sure I have this ready, i going to... Be prepared. Do I realize why I'm doing? This? Or the text says, "When so that when your son asked because one, your son, obviously, he's not going to be aware of what happened until your one of your animals, one of your livestock, has their firstborn son, and you go to redeem it with a lamb from the flock, and he says, "Why are we doing?" His son, you were bought too. You were redeemed at a cost. There's something amazing to think about that. We think about the firstborn sons, and it's a little bit different for us in our time period, but you know, the birth of a first child, it's a huge milestone in the life of any person. But as an Israelite, you'd be embracing core truth of your faith during this pivotal moment. That the very existence of your family, the very existence of your nation, is that you were bought with a price. You were to always remember, generation after generation, not just the people, but even your livestock, even your animals. Now, firstborn sons, this is a foreign concept to our ears to some degree. My sisters and I, we may argue that my older brother Seth is the favored child, I can say that because he's not here. You better not be listening. But we know that's not really the case. But in the ancient Near East, in many many other ancient cultures, this wasn't always the case. We hear the story, if you know the story of Jacob and Esau and the, the battle over the birthright. Well, that was a, a real thing. The, the oldest male child, he had certain value. Not just value, but he had certain responsibility for the family. He would be the next head of the family. He would be responsible for the family's welfare. Being the firstborn was a position of honor, a position of responsibility. A family would be utterly dependent upon this firstborn son in the event of the father's death. He was not only accorded a birthright of a double portion of the inheritance, but he's responsible for leading the family, for handling its affairs, and responsible for spiritual guidance. So, in essence, the firstborn son of a family in ancient Israel, he's the future of the family. Future of the family. So, what's God doing by declaring to Israel through this ordinance given at Passover, what's He declaring to them when He says, Every firstborn of man and of your livestock, it's mine. He's not making some arbitrary and selfish declaration. He's giving them a truth, something to remember that they, their future, they themselves are belong to Him. They are purchased with a price, and they had to be purchased with a price. As we look at this question, what is God doing by declaring that the firstborn of every man and beast is His, I want us to start a little bit further back in the text. Not just back to the beginning of Exodus, but all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. I want to read this quote from Michael Lawrence, another pastor writing on this. He says, the entire storyline of Scripture, the history of redemption, is the story of God providing substitutes for His people to cover their shame and bear the judgment they deserve so that they might be accepted by Him. That alone is a story of undeserved grace and amazing love, but all along God's plan and purpose was not only to provide that substitute, but to be that substitute in the person of his son, bearing in himself the punishment we could not bear and the shame we could not overcome. So what I want us to see this morning is the the command that we read in Exodus 13, where God says, you must redeem your firstborn sons because they are mine. It's a one step along a long process of promise, fulfillment, redemption and uh, this, this description of how God is going to save His people. I want us to see this in light of the big plan. I want us to see it in light of the, the large scope, the epic story that God has been do, uh, writing and that He's been guiding so that we might see and worship Him. I want us to look at Something called atonement. Specifically, something called, I'm going to use three words that might sound technical, but you'll get it here in a minute as we look at how God atones for the sins that we deserve, that atones for the sins that we committed by substituting a sacrifice that was sufficient and takes away and takes on the penalty that we deserved it's a term a phrase that's called penal substitutionary atonement that god would atone for our sins by taking on our punishment and you may say well what does that mean well let's walk through first how this is revealed in scripture we see first that god provides a substitute So if we look at the beginning of the story with Adam and Eve, you have Adam and Eve living in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with creation. Yet what do they do? They sin. They choose the lie that Satan tells them. They believe that lie and then act upon it and thus bring on judgment. But God told them before they committed this act that if they were to disobey Him, they would what? die. He says, you will surely die. But what we see in the story of Genesis 3 is that even as they partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, what they were not supposed to partake of, do they die immediately? No. But their countenance, their nature is radically changed. They now live in fear of God, seeking to hide from Him in the garden instead of joyfully entering into His presence. They know that they've done wrong. They know that they can't stand in the presence of a holy God. Their sin brings upon them shame and guilt. They are no longer able to relate to one another. And God warns them. He says, you will be banished from my presence. You're going to be banished from the garden. And that man, the ground is going to be cursed because of you. Woman, Eve, childbirth will be a pain for you now. But in the midst of these curses, as God tells them, it's still grace because He said what? You will surely die, but they're not immediately wiped out. God could have immediately wiped, out, wiped them out and started over but no, He shows grace. He shows it through a promise. It says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is during his curse to Satan. Serpent. Then there is a, a promise, but then we see God provide a substitute. We read in Genesis that they were naked and Unashamed, And then when they committed sin, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. But what does God They try to clothe themselves with fig leaves. They couldn't provide garment that would effectively cover them. So what does God do? God provides them animals. But we know, what did that require? Already we've got the hint. For our sin, our shame to be covered, it will require the life of someone. It will require the life of something. We see that God provides a substitute for Adam and Eve. Then if we get to moving forward in the story of redemption, we get to Abraham. You get to Abraham, you get to Genesis 15. It's a passage that I love as God establishes His covenant with Abraham. He does it through this ritual sacrifice. I'm not going to read all of it now, but I've uh, described it before where... He has laid out this, this sacrifice where the animals are split in two, but then for Abraham, he puts Abraham to sleep. And God, while they're both supposed to walk through these sacrifices, signifying that if I break this covenant, then this shall come, this punishment, this death will come upon me. Abraham's put to sleep, and God is the one. As a flaming fire pot in Genesis 15, he walked between the pieces, declaring to Abraham, I've made a covenant with you and I will keep it even at the cost of mine. We see this promise and it's based with that promise that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 15 that we get to Genesis 22. Now Genesis 22, what's happening here? Well, this is Abraham and his son Isaac. You know, God has promised to Abraham that He will make him into a nation of many and that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. He says, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky than the sand next to the ocean. But then, when God finally provides Abraham a son, God tells him to take Isaac to the top of the mountain. I want to read from verses 8 through 14 of chapter 22 just to hear what's going. So Isaac, he's he's not just a little boy at this point. He's probably a, a teenager if not a grown man even as he goes with his father. Abraham and him are walking to the top of the mountain. They leave their servants behind and they know they're going to provide a sacrifice but they've got nothing with them. What does Abraham do? Abraham... And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord shall be provided. You've got to remember Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the Torah, the five books of the Bible written by Moses for the people of Israel to tell them the history of how they came to be. So when they talk about the firstborn sons, it's not just a command without a context, but they would have known the promise. Look, as Abraham trusted in God to provide a substitute, God will provide a substitute for us. When we get to Israel at the Exodus, God still provides a substitute when He says, I'm going to appear in my wrath against Pharaoh. But even before that, you get back to the beginning of Exodus and what does God declare to Pharaoh? He says, through Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your." see this connection continuing and it it brings us to today's text because we know Pharaoh did just as God promised Pharaoh refused to let them go and God during the Passover brings his wrath against those who have rebelled against him and he tells his people the only way that you too will not feel the wrath is if you sacrifice a lamb Place that blood on the door. Trust in my presence. We get to this text today and God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. They are told to do this so that they would perpetually recognize that they truly belong to God. That this was most perfectly exemplified by the fact that He owned the first and the best of all that they had. That they would recognize they needed a substitute to take on the wrath of God in their place. They were told they need a substitute, but they've seen how God has so richly provided a substitute from Adam and Eve to Abraham, and now even as he has come to rescue them out of Egypt, he's provided a substitute. But these small substitutes are not complete, are they? See, God would not only in Exodus establish this rule that the firstborn sons of Israel would have to be redeemed, but if you continue reading on, and we know Israel, one, fails to go into the promised land, and they're given the law, and they're told how to structure and as the... The tribes are structured in their purpose and the tribe of Levi is dedicated to lead the nation in worship. We see that they are chosen to be the firstborn son, the the substitute for the firstborn sons of all of Israel. That Levi would be set apart. So that the substitute would also be the mediator. The substitute would be the one who regularly offered the sacrifice. So we see that again. So God's still telling this story to the people of Israel. One, you need a substitute. But nothing that you can provide is going to be good enough. But I've promised to provide a substitute. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So Israel, even as they had to come year after year, they not only had to provide substitutes for their firstborn they also had to provide a substitute sacrifice as they had to have their sins atoned for every year at the Day of Atonement. So sacrifice after sacrifice, bloody, suffering sacrifice is given in their stead. Because their sin separates them from the Holy God called the are still promised. God promised. Their regular participation in these sacrifices is a holding on to this promise that God is going to provide substance. See this most perfectly promised by Prophet Isaiah. As Israel falls into rebellion. The nation is falling apart. The prophet Isaiah says, where is our hope? Where is our hope? And God reveals to him in this magnificent pastor, <clears throat> chapter. It says in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. What is God saying here? He's saying, I am going to send a servant, a, someone who will suffer in your stead. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. For the transgressor. What was the prophet Isaiah looking for? He received from the Lord that not only would the substitute finally be provided, but he would be a substitute who was perfect, a substitute whose sacrifice was sufficient. Not only that, but he would be a mediator that he would die, He would take on our sins in our place, and then He would stand as our mediator before a holy God, defending us, standing for us. He would be there to declare us righteous with His righteousness, not our own. See that God has promised a substitute. This is what we see in Exodus 13. It's It's not just a declaration, it's a a declaration that reminds them, it's to humble them day in, year in, year out. They were bought with a price. They are not their own. There needs to be atonement. Atonement, it means making amends. It means blotting out the offense giving satisfaction for wrong done, thus reconciling to oneself the alienated other and restoring the disrupted relationship. If that's what atonement means. Then we've got no hope by ourselves. If that's what atonement means. And we've got no hope because we cannot reconcile ourselves before a holy God. And that's what God meant to show Israel through the repetitive sacrifice year in, year out, every time the next generation needed to see a needed substitute. Desperate. What God was promising for them. Not only that He would provide the substitute, but God Himself would be we get to the good news of the New Testament, we go to the Gospel of John. And how does the Gospel of John open up? Go to John 1, opening verses of the Gospel, and we read, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus enters into the scene. He's fully God, yet He's fully man. He is the promised Messiah. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, what Isaiah promised, I now see. God promised to provide a substitute and now He is here in the flesh before us. When we get to Luke's Gospel, we read in Luke 22 what Jesus says about Himself. You go to Luke 22, read verse... 37. Just for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressor. So what does Jesus claim to be? He says, Look, I'm the promised suffering servant. I've come to be numbered with you, despite the fact that I've committed. On in verse 42. Jesus said that to the disciples as he's preparing to be arrested, preparing to go to the cross. And then, just a few verses later, as he's praying on the Mount of Olives, praying to the Father, what does he pray to God the Father? If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. The firstborn Son of God is the substance not just for the firstborn son of him, but for mankind. Jesus declares in these verses what's already been promised. He is the substitute. That he is the son of God. Read and mark the count of the crucifixion. If it wasn't enough that Jesus witnessed to Himself, then listen to the witness from a secular unbeliever. As Christ dies on the cross, there's earthquakes, the sun is eclipsed, the the darkness comes about and everyone is terrified. But what does the centurion say in verse 39 of chapter 15? He stood facing Him, and when he saw Jesus breathe His last, he says, Truly, This man was the son of God. Jesus is the substitute. Why is this so important? Why is this such good news for us? I'll let the author of Hebrews that what I was it's this long picture, long story. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, the firstborn Son of God, the heir of all things, gave up what He had so that we might do life with Him. That's what we read in Philippians 2. He set aside His glory to take on human flesh, to become like us and to die for us. This is good news. Because now, though we stand sinners before a holy God condemned, without hope, we now have hope there is a sufficient substance a perfect substitute for us. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast The confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful why do we need to see this god made a promise to adam and eve a promise that was full of grace for they didn't deserve that rescue did they but even as he made that promise to adam and eve he's kept that promise From Adam and Eve, He kept that promise to their descendants through Noah. He's kept that promise from Noah to Abraham that He's going to provide a substitute. Now He says, look, this is what's going to cost you. You don't deserve the next generation. You don't deserve to have a future. But I'm going to provide a substitute for you. But it's not yet come. So you keep remembering that I'm going to provide a substitute. And you live in accordance with My promises. And God keeps His promise again and again. Yet mankind continues to rebel. Israel rebels. Yet God promises, I'm going to send a substitute. A substitute that will will cover all of your sin. Not only that, but if you read in Isaiah 52, He says, not only will He sprinkle Israel, He will sprinkle the nation. So this promise was not just a promise of rescue for Israel, but it was a promise for the entire world. So God's going to send a substitute and then God substitute enters onto the scene and it is God Himself who's taken on human flesh and He gives up His life so that we then might have life with Him. Now if there's not good news there, I don't know what's good news. You don't deserve it. You deserve to go to hell. You deserve the wrath of God. But God, in His grace, has substituted Himself for us. That's the promise of the Gospel. It's the promise we saw in Genesis 15. God would take on the implication of the covenant. Why did He do? God is the substitute that He might display that he is worthy of all glory and glory. Paul writes this in Romans 3, 21-26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it in blood for what we deserve. Why did He do it? He says this was to show God righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sin. And it was to show His righteousness as, it, as at the present time, so that He might be both the just, for God would be unholy, unworthy of our worship if He did not punish sin when it must be punished. When he did, if He did not deal with sin. But He says, God did this so that He might be the just and the justifier. So what's the point of this? God says, I'm going to demonstrate my justice and I'm going to demonstrate my grace by being not only the one who upholds the law and keeps the law, but who, the one who takes on the punishment of the law for you so that you might know Here's the key. He is the just and the justifier of one who has faith. He is not the just and the justifier of the one who continued to rebel. To reject. God demonstrates His righteousness and that He satisfies justice by pouring out his wrath against sinful mankind, but He does so all while keeping His promise, which He made, to take on the consequences of our sin. He does this through His Son, Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Passover Lamb, the only obedient and innocent man to ever walk. God pours out his wrath upon him that we might escape that wrath for the right. Why is this important? Why is this good news? good news for us because we see the promise real. the Israelites, they had to remember they did this, God gives them this command in Exodus 13 so that they would remember year after year every time they had a son, every time their horse, cow, their donkey, their oxen had a firstborn. They were told they're perpetually in debt to God. For He was going to redeem Here's the good We get to look back at the cross. God has redeemed for Him. That's why Paul asked the Galatians, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He says, Why are you living not in light of the cross? You saw, you know, He was crucified for your sins. Why are you not living in light of that? Two points for why this is important for us. It was important for the Israelites because they were told they're not our own. It's important for us because we are not to live as if we are our own. We are bought. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. For do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So you, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's greed... Whether it's covetousness, whether it's lying, whether it's abuse, whether it's violence, whether it's anger, you are not your own, so stop living like you are. That's negatively, but now let's look at it positively. We are to live as the redeemed children that we are. If if you have trusted in God, you know you have access to the throne room, the creator of the universe. You can call Him Father. You can come before Him with your concerns and you can look upon His steadfast love and the promises that He has made and that He has kept. You can know with confidence In light of this promise, I want to close with these words from Peter. If we're to live as redeemed children, then this is what this looks like. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without limit. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake. Through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith, hope, I hope, prayers. We would briefly at the requirement, of a sacrifice for the firstborn sons. We see how God has so richly provided for us through His. I hope and my prayer is that you would see the sacrifice that God has made for you that you would be compelled to come before God in repentance and faith, trusting in His good promises even while turning, recognizing your sin and turning to Him. Because His promises are good. The, other, the things of this world, the things that would draw us away from Him, they only are going to destroy it. But His promises are good. His promise is good. We find ourselves in him. We know we have a pure future. We oh we one day dwell with us. apart from, apart from broken. Prayer that all of us be able to live in God Truth. You can live in light of the truth. Trust in Christ. Christian, we are to live in light of the truth. For we